0: Got some microphone? <laughs> How you guys doing? Good morning, everybody. Hey, Dan Cobb. Want to make sure you're listening to me back there, buddy. I got just because you're sitting on the back row, doesn't mean I don't have my eyes on you. Uh, by the way, this is fun. Dan cop uh, is—he's a pastor of a church in the uh, Detroit area and. And uh, he was a hardcore skeptic as a 20 something engineer working for GM and uh, on a journey to Christ. Really cool. He's been a church planner for the last 10 plus years or so, built a beautiful church. And anyway, we haven't hung out together in a long time. They got three beautiful daughters and just very cool. So fun to have them. So he doesn't need to listen. Actually, I should be listening to you. Uh, by the way, which of you would be like me? Like if, if we got offered right now to go back to the tab and watch the morning the morning show again. Would you head over there with me? <laughs> Those guys are so funny. I, you know, I mean, I live my life and I thought, you know, in, in today's world, it's, there's so much tension and frustration and you come to Gull Lake and you just, like the whole week is peeing your pants funny. Should I not say that? <laughs> I mean, everything they do is just hilarious. And uh, Paul and I are sitting on the back row this morning in the tab. We're going, oh, we can't wait to be here with our grandkids next week because they're going to, you know, you know how your kids are responding. But the other thing that was super sweet is we walked, I walked by a few people, a few of you moms and dads leading devotionals with your kids today. And uh, gosh, it was like, you just feel hope for the world again. I'm like, okay, here's one family, you know, that loves Jesus. Here's another family that loves Jesus. And you're, I watch somebody just really working hard to teach your kids. And anyway, it, okay, that's, that's just the problem of being old. I need a testosterone injection. So, uh, but I want to share with you today that as I was thinking about this week, this is my fourth time, I think, teaching at Gull Lake and I, and I had a different goal this week than I'd had in other goals, and I thought one of the goals that I felt like Jesus gave me this week was to as, I, as we were talking together is to think about our own journeys with Jesus right through the scripture, but also to feel some of what our kids are feeling right and so I thought about I was going to revisit you know like as I was teaching the kids yesterday. I know y'all listened in, but it was really for the kids, but I, I was thinking because those things don't change as you get older. Like what you experienced when you were five with Jesus, or what you experienced when you were 12, or what you experienced when you were 20, they don't change when you're older. I was just talking to Russell, who's battling myasthenia gravis, right? And it's a terrible thing that he's struggling with. And all of a sudden I thought, your journey with Jesus and trusting him is no different than it would have been 50 years ago, right? It's living, like, are you going to trust Jesus with your life? and? And so I want us to this week to feel into what our kids are feeling. And I I think Paul and I, as our kids got older, we realized we had, uh, in a sense, underestimated our kids. At times, we underestimated what they were thinking about and what they were grappling with. And in many cases, so much more. Like I remember when our son was about 18, and I realized that he was thinking about black holes and uh, string theory. And, and I was like, and I realized that I was completely and totally unprepared to talk about the existence of God and, and the movement of the universe and the things that he was grappling with, and I was completely unprepared for that, and I'd completely underestimated the level of his grappling and his questioning. And I thought, what you're doing here is building a foundation for you to like lean into where they are and understand them. So the first turning point where I talked about the gift of seeing Every one of these turning points for me at 65 is unchanged from the moment I had that first turning point experience. So when I saw the people in the streets of Nairobi, that hasn't changed. Uh, our church, um, when we saw what was happening in India, our global partner in India, we, just, they, uh, we built a hospital about 12 or 14 years ago there. And the India, the government picked that hospital to be one of the centers for COVID treatment in, in uh, Rajamundri in Eastern Andhra Pradesh. And so we went to our congregation and said, Hey, they're, un- they're unprepared for this. And, uh, and others saw the need, like we've got to respond because Jaya Sankar and Lakshmi and Devi and Prashanth and their fam, the, the, uh, Naveen, all the people that are serving there, we need to respond. So we shared it with our congregation and, um, By the end of the day, there was $250,000 was being sent. And it was incredible because it was like the Lord, as I told you, the Lord brought around me people who have the gift of seeing. And as I was watching you lead your devotionals today, the Lord's doing that. Like the Lord is opening your children's eyes, opening your eyes, opening our eyes. Okay, so that's number one. Number two today is I want to talk about not the gift of seeing, but the gift of belonging. Because this is another one of the massive turning points that God uniquely touches each one of us but also brings that uh, into our lives at different moments where we realize we have this incredible longing. And it's the gift of belonging that often brings us to Jesus. At some moment in our life, it might have been at age five. For me, it was age 13. My second turning point I want to talk about through, through Matthew 26 and 27, following up from the, the sheep and the goats, is this turning point where what, when I first felt at a visceral level, what Jesus went through. And it's what made me want to follow him. And so when people say, well, I don't know if I can believe in Jesus. I don't know if I can believe in the miracles. It was interesting. It wasn't the miracles that made me want to believe. It was what Jesus experienced for me in Matthew 26 and 27. I can still remember when I first had a... An older friend, teach a group of junior high kids. This story, it's what really made me want to believe. And so uh, let me give you the context for this. It's a year, it's a year and a half uh, later from 1968. We're back in Memphis. And um, we came back from Memphis. And man, it was crazy. Okay. It took to 1968 and 69 for the 60s to reach Memphis. And what was happening on the west coast and in uh, and in the east finally got to Memphis in the late '60s. And so when I left Memphis, we were going to school in black, like dress pants, cotton pants, black shoes, often white socks, uh, a white button-down shirt. Maybe if you're really stretching it out, you might have a bit of a plaid. You know, I came back to. All of and, and hair above the ears, I came back to uh, the same school, the same lifelong friends. And when I came back, all of, all of my buddies had hair down to their shoulders, wearing bell bottoms and tie-dye shirts. Can you imagine my, cultural, my, my culture shock coming back into that? And they had facial hair. And drugs and sex and alcohol had, were rife in eighth and ninth grade, Snowden Junior High School. And man, I was completely unprepared for it. Added to that, our family was kind of, we were kind of Memphis celebrities. On both of the big Memphis newspapers, there were front page feature articles on the Andrews family and how Dr. Doctor Chubb had taken his family into a remote part of Africa to serve God. And weren't we this amazing group of people? And that And one of those stories appeared... In late February of 1970, and I was uh, in eighth grade, I was playing on the ninth grade basketball team. (laughs) And the week before we got to the district finals, uh, my mom and dad were teaching a Bible study at our house. And my dad was a great Bible teacher, way, way better than me. And I don't know why, since God called me to church, why couldn't he have given me some of my, my dad was amazing. And so there would be often on Tuesday nights at our house, 100 people crammed in or more than 100 people crammed into the dining room, the living room, and the great room of our, of our big gray stone wall house. And that night, uh, I, ha- I was supposed to be doing a research project at the library, but I was actually meeting friends. And that night, I'm not going to tell you the whole story, but that night we decided, th- thought it would be funny because it was early March by then. It was the first week in March, and it was really war- a very warm you know, s- southern March night. We decided it would be fun to throw smoke bombs into the Memphis Public Library because all the windows were open. And so we got eight or 10 smoke bombs, and there were four of us. And we lit them at different windows, and we all pitched them in at the same time. It was amazing. (laughs) It was a four-alarm fire. uh, Five fire trucks from five different stations came to the library. But while we were doing that, we thought it would also be fun to throw it into this apartment building, which we didn't quite realize was a senior citizen residence. And we did not realize that we caused absolute terror. Like there were older people on the second floor thinking and preparing that maybe they possibly were going to, have to jump off their balconies to escape the fire. So we, what we thought was just going to be this hilarious lark, we, we got in huge trouble. By the way, the next day, the next morning in uh, social studies, eighth grade social studies, I got arrested Uh, chief of the Memphis Police Department came to our school and arrested the four guys because they knew who we were. And the week before, I'd been on the front page of the Memphis Commercial Appeal as this great kid of the great missionary family, just come back from Africa. And a week later, I'm arrested, being taken down to the juvie. So it's kind of funny now. It wasn't too funny then. But here's the amazing thing that I want to tell you what happened, because after we threw the smoke bombs, we all ran home. And we knew that we were probably going to get caught. We were scared to death. And I had about a mile run home. I ran all the way home. And people were still socializing. There were still a lot of people in the house laughing and talking and, you know, having desserts and coffee. And And so I tried to sneak in the back door through the kitchen. And, and it's interesting turning points where something happens to you that happens that it never happens again. I walked in the back door. And I was almost through the kitchen, getting ready to head up the the steps up to my room. And I thought i get up to my room, I'll, you know, I'll I'll calm down. Man, my heart's racing, my heart's beating. I walk in the kitchen, there's this twenty something guy. And I was I was big for eighth grade, but this guy was a lot bigger than me. And uh he goes, Hey, you're you're chubby and Margie's youngest, right? What's yeah, what's your name? Like, Steve. He goes, Yeah, yeah, that's right. And uh And then he did something no one else has ever done to me in all the years of my life. He goes, How are you doing with Jesus? So I just spent the last 15 minutes running from cops through back alleys of downtown Memphis after throwing these smoke bombs with some buddies. And I walk in, and for the first time in my life, someone who doesn't even know me goes, So, how are you doing with Jesus? And I want you to know something. I've never hated anybody more in my whole life than I hated this guy. I tried to, I tried to mumble and answer. Uh, I tried to, you know, try to make up, but here's what I realized. My faith in Jesus was simply by proxy. I thought I knew about Jesus because I belonged to Chubb and Marge Andrews and a great family. But I didn't know Jesus. And I'd heard about Jesus all my life. I didn't know him personally. I'd never experienced who jesus was and what he had come to do for me and i tried to stumble through an answer to this guy but and i finally got away from him and i went up to my room and i laid laid in my laid on my bed and, and i had this terrible feeling that my life had just changed like like i, I i'm in trouble but also my faith i don't have a faith really i have a faith that belongs to my parents so here's what's funny i get arrested and all these things are happening and uh, I have to admit it to my parents. We have to go down with my parents to juvenile court. My dad just looked at me. I mean, he never yelled. He's like, son, I don't know why you felt like you needed to do this. You know, I'm like, dad, beat me with a stick or strike me or do something. You know, But don't just quietly bemoan this with me. But he knew how painful that was. So, so anyway, almost to, almost to the passage. I know this is a little taking long. But this, this was such a moment in my life. The very next week, my mom turns to me and she goes, hey, there's this guy named Rob Saunders. He went to school with your oldest brother, Bill. And uh, he's he's going to do a Bible study for junior high kids at your school. She said, you should invite all your friends to come to this Bible study. And I remember literally thinking in my head, it'll be a cold day in hell before I invite anybody to a Bible study for my, you know. And, she, and, she, and Rob Saunders, she goes, you don't know Rob, but he's he was one of the real troublemakers in bill's class and you know alcohol and drugs the whole thing but he had this dramatic conversion and i didn't tell her that that he had buttonholed me in my kitchen and so she made me go that night and what i'm going to teach you today is what he taught that night he taught the story which when we think back to yesterday of jesus hunger thirst nakedness strangeness sickness, imprisonment, torture. Like this is really what he taught the next day. So this is what I want you to think about, and this is what I did that I had never done before as I went through this, and this is what Rob did. He taught me how to do this. (laughs) Have you ever just made a list of what Jesus experienced in the last few hours of his life? Did you just make the list and think about it? Let's do it today, okay? Some of you are taking notes. Let's just make this list, starting in Matthew 26. number Matthew 26, verse 3. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to kind of work my way through these two chapters. I'm not using every verse because I don't have time. But I, I want you to just live into this. I want you to feel this like I felt it as a 13-year-old boy trying to find my identity, trying to find my belonging. You know what Maslow's hierarchy needs? Anybody remember Psych 101 from college? The first, the first level is what? Your basic... Your basic needs: food, water shelter. Second, does anybody remember? Security and safety. I had both of those. Third one was belonging. And when you turn 13, it's not enough to belong to your parents and your family anymore. You want to belong to your peer group. You want to belong to other people. You want to fit in, right? This love and belonging need is gigantic, and people will, many of us in this room have made terrible, destructive choices when we were young, didn't we? Because we wanted to, we wanted to belong. This is where I realized who I wanted to belong to. Okay, so let's go through the passages. Verse 3, says, The chief priests and the elders of the people assembled in the palace of the high priest, whose name was Caiaphas. By the way, if you ever go there, it's a beautiful, incredible place. And you can also, I bet you some of you have been there where you've been in the dungeon below. Have you ever seen this? It's, if you ever get a chance to do this, it's one of the most, cop, have you ever been there? Okay, you got to go. It is one of the most spiritually moving places in the earth to to sit down and read the psalms in the dungeon in the darkness and realize that Jesus was thrown into this pit. It's an incredible thing, but this is the, Jesus isn't there yet, but they're scheming to arrest Jesus secretly and kill him, but not during the festival or there may be a riot among the people. So, the first thing that, I, that Rob shared that night is Jesus was plotted against. He never did anything wrong, but he was plotted against by his religious enemies to seize him and to kill him. And I just want to give you a, give one, one word to think about, one Greek word, the word dolos, was just Jesus was surrounded by stealth, craftiness, and scheming. We're going to find this out, that at every turn, as all he had ever come to do was to love and to bring truth and hope, and to be surrounded by craftiness and scheming. Secondly, this is, this is the second thing that got me. It's going to be hard for me to get through this, but it's just so good to think about it, because this is what still, all these years later, makes me want to believe. Like, what if this wasn't true? It's still the most powerful story ever told. I believe it's true, but the story, you can't make it up. Number two. He was devalued by his closest friends. Verse 6, While Jesus was in Bethany in the home of Simon the leper, a woman came to him with an alabaster jar, a very expensive perfume, which he poured on his head as he was reclining at the table. And when the disciples saw this, they were indignant. And this is, this is incredible. Why this waste? They asked. So here of the Lord of the universe who's loved them and walked with them for three years, called them to a life of significance. And here he is honored by a woman who's grateful, who who, recon- who sees him, who's had the gift of seeing, by the way. And they can't see. They're still blind. They've been with him for three years. They're, they still haven't received the gift of seeing. It's hard, hard to believe, but it's true. And that's why I love the. By the way, that's why I love the 12, because they were idiots, which means we're all in the same camp. Right? This is the beautiful part. When I was a kid, no one ever taught this part of the story. And, and I grew up like, oh, well, the apostle. Like, Are you kidding me? Read the text. They didn't know what was going on. They go, why this waste? This perfume could have been sold at a high price and the money given to the poor. Let's look at this word waste again. I'm just giving you different Greek words that I love. Any of you could do this in the Blue Letter Bible, but it's, it's really fun to look at. But the word is apalea and it's perishing or it's ruin it's destruction it could be the describe the waste of money or the destruction which consists of eternal misery in hell and here's what i realized even after all these years someone showing extravagance to jesus to them was an utter waste now think about this they had seen jesus on multiple occasions feed thousands of people like turn nothing into something amazing and they they're looking at jesus and the honor that they could bring to Jesus, and, and it's a waste. This is why I love the apostles, because later they're going to understand, right? Eventually they're going to understand. And so this, I began to be moved by this. And Rob, by the way, there were about 55 kids in Sarah Tate's basement that night as Rob Saunders was teaching. And by the way, Rob, Rob was a mess, but he was, he was the guy that brought us to Jesus, The next thing I want you to see is that he was betrayed by his friend. Then verse 14, one of the 12, the one called Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priests and said, what are you willing to give me if I deliver him over to you? By the way, that word deliver, is exact. it's going to occur repeatedly. That's the word for betray. They counted out for him 30 pieces of silver. From then on, Judas watched for an opportunity to hand him over. This word "betrayed" is a really interesting word. Uh, when you, if you can look at it on the screen, it's to deliver up, deliver up one to custody to be judged, condemned, punished, scourged, scourged, tormented, and put to death, and then to deliver up treacherously. Like this is the wor- maybe the worst word in the world relationally. Like if you're, you you have all everyone in this room has been betrayed by friends. Every one of you can go back to junior high or high school or at some point where, you, you, where someone betrayed you. Think about the horror of this word. And Jesus, after all that he's done, one of his closest friends, by the way, who was in charge of the treasury, delivers him up and does it for money as well. When I realized this, I thought, it's so easy for all of us to betray jesus and as i was sitting there that night as a 13 year old boy all i could think of was i haven't done that right quite as bad but i'm a betrayer i am i am a betrayer i knew it he rob Saunders didn't have to say it and and over the years subsequent years there have been many years when i I handed Jesus over to be condemned by somebody else. Like I didn't stand up for Jesus, or I didn't I didn't take the moment, or I wanted to be liked, or I wanted achievement, or I wanted some other reward more than I wanted Jesus. He goes on to say in verse twenty four about this betrayal, the Son of Man will go just as as it is written about him. But woe to that man who betrays the Son of Man. It would be better for him if he had not been born. And then Judas, the one who would betray him. Man, you talk about, you got to give Judas a lot of credit for having gall. He still hears that, and he goes, Surely you don't mean me, Rabbi. He had already made the plans. Now, I want to tell you something about my belief and my hope about heaven. I still harbor hopes that even at the very end, filled with remorse, that Judas killed himself. I have this incredible longing to see Judas in heaven in the presence of Jesus. I really do. I hope that even in that last moment, I don't know, I don't have anything biblically to account for that, but I'm even thinking in that last moment, like the thieves on the cross, that Judas was still crying out for God's forgiveness and God's love. So, betrayed by his friends. The next one is they all fall away. And here's the word. You'll recognize this word, scandalizo, right? It's where we get the word scandal, where to do something really particularly heinous. And, and the scandal is when you cause a person to begin to distrust and desert one whom he ought to trust and obey. In other words, all the people that are accusing are going to accuse Peter, where Peter says, you know, later you're going to see this. Jesus told them in verse 31, this very night you will all fall away. Scandalizo on account of me. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd, to strike is with a sword, and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. Let's be honest. When you look at this story of how Jesus tells his disciples to put, put away their swords in a different gospel account, you realize that in a sense, he he, in that moment, kind of casts doubt into the heart of the apostles. They're trying to gear up to, to think about if they're going to rescue him, and Jesus kind of pulls the rug out from under them. People don't talk a lot about that when they're teaching the story. Jesus yanks the rug out, and they're standing there like, what the heck? And then they see Jesus taken, and what, is their, what other recourse do they have but to all run away? And I think Jesus knew that that was part of what the story needed to be. The next thing that really hit me that I think I'd always over-spiritualized is I always thought, well, if Jesus is the Son of God, he's like, well, I'm going to go to the cross, and I'm going to do this, and because you know, this is what has to be done. And you lose the humanness of it. You lose how vulnerable and lonely Jesus felt. And, and, and at that moment, until Rob was teaching, I had never experienced the fact that Jesus was crushed in this moment, before he'd even been arrested, he says to his disciples, my soul, he's in the garden now. Oh, by the way, I got to go to that part of the Garden of Gethsemane where you can only get to by appointment, and I took about 20 guys there right before quarantine hit, and uh, oh my, you guys, if you ever get a chance to go, it's super quiet, it's removed, you can. it's a gated place. They think it's the place, really a likely place where Jesus might have been, and I took 20 guys, and after an hour in there, I, there were 20 of us just weeping, thinking of what Jesus must have felt in this moment. But he said, "My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death." This is the word paralippos, and it just mean. I mean, he was totally crushed in spirit. Like I don't know if I'm literally, I, if I could literally drop dead right now. I'm so crushed. He says, "Stay here and keep watch with me." And going a little further, he fell with his face to the ground. And he prayed, my father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. And then he returned to his disciples and found them sleeping. Couldn't you keep watch with me for one hour, he asked Peter. And here was the word. Uh, th- this is the prayer. By the way, if you would ask me in the Bible, what's, what's the most important prayer? We're praying? It's not the Lord's Prayer. Not, not even close. This is the most important prayer ever prayed in the history of the world. It's a really simple prayer. It's the only prayer that's really, when you cut down all of the circumstances of life, it's the only prayer that's worth anything. It's the only prayer. It's not like, I mean, they're wonderful prayers to pray. Lord, heal me. I'm going to pray for Russell. You know, I'm going to pray. I'm praying for people in my life. I'm praying for one of my kids to return to Jesus. These are huge prayers. But none of them have the gravitas of this prayer. It's probably something we should frame and put in our houses, put on our, put on our refrigerator door. Yet not as I will, but as you will. This, this is the prayer of all prayers, right? This is the prayer that no matter the circumstance, you can pray this prayer. You can pray it through clenched teeth. You can look at your kids when some of you have, a lot of you have really young kids, and you know it's going to, for some of them, For some of them, they're going to wander. They're going to wander far away. And you're going to be in the middle of the night, like Paul and I, many nights, praying this prayer, Lord, I don't don't know where my daughter is tonight. I know where she's going to be next week. She's going to be here with my grandkids. But there were nights that we had almost given up hope. And if you were to meet her next week, you'd, you'd be amazed at what an incredible human being. And we can't even explain what God did. But it was the prayer. There were many prayers, but the only prayer really in the end that we could pray was, Lord, it's not my will, but yours be done. We're placing our lives in your hands. And this is what Jesus showed us to do. And I think this was the first moment in this turning point of this gift of belonging where I realized that I wanted to belong to this person who was willing to give up everything. And the fact that he, he asked, couldn't you keep watch with me for one hour? And his, the people that loved him most couldn't. They just couldn't do it. The next, the next thing that I, again, realized, it was such a powerful experience for me as I was making this list, is he was kissed Going at once to Jesus, Judas said, Greetings, Rabbi, and kissed him. This was the sign. And Jesus replied, Do what you came for. And what's the next word? Say it out loud. Friend. Do what you came for. Friend. I realized if Jesus in this moment, could still call Judas friend, he could certainly call me friend, right? He could call you friend. He could still welcome you. There was a moment when uh, a couple of our kids returned to Jesus in their 20s. And they came back and they... And they wanted to be restored in relationship to us, and pr- probably particularly to me. Paula had already welcomed them with open arms. But I was so hurt by some of their wanderings that when they started coming back to me, I did this. I really did. Like, I believe, you know, I'm like teaching grace my whole life, and my kids are coming back. And I, w- I wanted them to know how bad I was hurt. And Paula gave me maybe the sweetest gift that a that a human being has. She's given me so many sweet gifts, but she's given me the gift of discernment through the years. And she pulled me aside. It was about a week or two after we had had this incredible, incredibly wonderful, difficult family meeting. And but she could still I was she could see I was still holding my heart back, you know. And we were I don't know where we were. But we were alone. She goes, you know. He said, they're not going to keep coming back to you forever. Like, they're not just going to keep coming back waiting for your love and your, your full acceptance and your unconditional love and your embrace. They're not going to just keep coming back and finding you with a, with a, with a closed-off heart. And that was another one of those turning points. You're going to open your heart. Because what I want to say, you have hurt me so bad. You know? Instead of going, listen, I'm so sorry for all the mistakes that I made as a father. I'm sorry for all the times I was overbearing to you. i was so so sorry for all the times I was negative to you when I should have been painting painting a beautiful picture of the future. And I thought, in this moment, what Jesus did, in the moment he was betrayed— he calls judas friend i don't think i've ever heard anybody preach on that have you at this moment he's like okay you got do what you came to do you're still my friend go back to john where jesus said i don't call you my servants any longer right all of us in this room we're not the servants of the lord jesus christ we're not what are we we're friends we're sons and daughters this is what jesus does incredible Let's keep going on what, well, I'm going to get stuck forever here, but I've got, a few, got, got time to get through this. It's, I hope you're feeling this. I hope that God is speaking to you at some level about what Jesus did so beautifully for you and for me. The, th- the next thing I saw was that he was innocent of everything. The chief priests and the whole Sanhedrin were looking for false evidence against Jesus so that they could put him to death. They didn't find any so many false witnesses came forward, wouldn't you, wouldn't you love to, to be able to go back in history and replay that? To see all the people, they had, had all these people lined up just to tell lies. We have no idea what they were saying, but they were false. Think of every person in history that's been falsely accused. Think of every person who came to the moment of their false accusation and had no one to stand in their gap. And to know that Jesus knows what that feels like. Anybody here ever read the book Just Mercy by Bryan Stevenson? Anybody in the room? Let me show of hands. Okay, three of us. Some of you, anybody seen the movie? Okay, a few of you have seen the movie. Another four or five. Bryan Stevenson has been defending people on death row for the, since 1985 in Alabama, Louisiana, and Georgia. His book is one of the most painful books I've ever read in my life. Paula still hasn't been able to finish the book and it's beautifully written but it's basically about people who were that they proved eventually were falsely accused spent 20 or 30 years in jail for murders that they never committed and in almost every case in those early years these people and it was not it was people of people of color it was people white all kinds of people but the, the overriding principle is every one of these people it was on death row, had one thing in common. Do anybody remember what it was? They were poor. They had no legal representation. Almost all of them were represented, particularly in the 80s and the early 90s, by a court-appointed lawyer who was, listen, listen to this, paid $10 a day for their defense. Paid $10 a day. And so they went to some of them were guilty. Sure, surely people on death row are guilty in some cases, but many, many of them had no good representation until Brian Stevenson has spent the last, particularly the first 20 years from 85 to 2005, risking his life in the craziest rural areas, visiting and trying to... But here's what I want you to know. When I read that book, Just Mercy, I thought of Matthew 26. I thought, Jesus, every person that's been falsely accused, every person sitting in prison that, was, that is innocent, Jesus knows their heart. That's why I want to follow this Jesus. What do you think? They said in verse 36, he's worthy of death. That's all they wanted to say. Everything was trumped up, but he was worthy of death. Next one. Spit upon, struck, slapped, mocked. I think this is the point where I where it all became so real to me. They spit in his face. They struck him with their fists. Others slapped him, and they said, Prophesy to us, Messiah, who hit you? The next one is denied. This is where we get... uh, Let me read it, and then we'll, we'll look at really what this means. But Peter was sitting out in the courtyard. By the way, if you ever go to Israel, you can go right... Right behind Caiaphas' his house, they still have the little structures of the servant quarters. You can probably stand within 10 feet of where Peter stood and think about his denial right there. It's an incredible place where you can stand. Peter was sitting in the courtyard, and the servant girl said, You were with him, Jesus of Galilee, but he denied it before them all. I don't know what you're talking about. He denied it again with an oath. Verse 72, I don't know the man. And then verse 74, he began to call down curses and he swore to them, I don't know the man. And immediately a rooster crowed, and then Peter remembered the words Jesus had spoken. Before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. You ever study, go ahead and just, that, that phrase, think about what that phrase, to weep bitterly, means. And I, as Rob Saunders was teaching, I'm, again, I'm a 13-year-old punk. I, now, I'm a, now I'm a criminal You know, a 13-year-old criminal arrested for a a felony misdemeanor, and don't know what's going to happen with that. And I realize that my my life's pretty pathetic, and I realize I totally related. I could understand the night Jesus guy came back and went to Snowden Junior High School, and I didn't want any I didn't want to talk to anybody. I didn't want anybody to come to that Bible study. And when I got there, I was shocked that there was 50 kids there, and most of had been invited by kids that weren't Christians. (laughs) Because they, they didn't know enough about Jesus to be embarrassed by him. I knew enough to be embarrassed by Jesus. And I thought for those of us, even when we get older, it doesn't take much to deny, does it? You could be in a business meeting. You could be in a situation where you need to laugh at the appropriate times in order to secure a sale. It's really easy to deny. But this word, this Greek word, arneomai, it's, look at this. This is interesting. One part of the different definition, and I never thought about this until this week, but as Jesus was denying someone else, part of the definition of this, the core meaning of this word is to, you can't see it in the blue Harley, but it's to deny yourself. It's not just to deny the other person, but you, in a sense, are destroying yourself when you don't stand up for another person you should stand up for you you are in a sense destroying your own soul never never saw that before it's to dis- disregard your own interests to prove false to yourself to act entirely unlike yourself i think this is what peter when peter went out and wept bitterly he's I, i'm sure what he was thinking was what just happened this is not me And so I'm at this crossroads of my life, this turning point, and am I going to find my identity by identifying with the crucified God? Or am I going to find my identity by identifying with a peer group that's headlong into everything imaginable? Like, which one am I going to choose? Wow. A couple more. He was bound and led away. That's it no big deal. Verse 2 of 27, chapter 27, they bound him and led him away and handed him over to Pilate. Earlier, when you saw that they arrested, they seized him, When I, that word seized was interesting, but it's to take, take possession of. Uh, you're going to see that again in 27. The God of the universe, the Lord of all, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, allows himself to be seized and taken as the ownership of human beings. Jesus silent against his accusers. It says in verse 14, Jesus made no reply, not even to a single charge to the great amazement of the governor. Amazing to think of him being silent. And then this is where it really gets crazy. It was the governor's custom in verse 15 to release a prisoner chosen by the crowd. Are you feeling this with me still? You guys, Some of you still with me on this? At that time, they had a well-known prisoner. His name was Jesus Barabbas. Jesus Barabbas. So when the crowd had gathered, Pilate asked him, which one do you want me to release to you? Jesus Barabbas? Or Jesus who is called the Christ? The Messiah. Barabbas, they answer. What shall I do then with Jesus who is called the Messiah? Pilate asked. And they all answered, Crucify him. Why? What crime has he committed as Pilate? They shouted it all the louder, crucify him. And then in verse 25, maybe the most damning statement of all. They thought it was damning, but it wasn't. It was actually, they were preaching the gospel. They say, may his blood be on us and on our children. Oh, my goodness. You know what? Here's another thing I never heard anybody talk about when they looked at this passage. If they asked the crowd, who should we choose? Do you ever think of who Jesus would have chosen? Jesus would have chosen Barabbas. I don't think I ever realized that until last week as I was kind of re-prepping and thinking about this. Jesus was like, yeah, I don't like this. I don't like what the cup... That the father has asked me to drink, but if, if if Pilate would have turned to Jesus and said, So, you are Barabbas, Jesus said, Let Barabbas go. <laughs> is there any is there any belief system in the world that's like this? I mean, I ask you, read and study every every world religion, everything. Is there anything like this? Where the one who's falsely accused, he remains silent, he has he gives no defense? Isaiah 50 Go back as your homework and read Isaiah 53 maybe before you go to bed tonight, if you're not too tired, of, of the promise of the Messiah, Messiah right? The, of how we turned our eyes away from him. We couldn't stand to look at him. We, he was so mis- disfigured by this point. And it says that he was silent as a sheep before its shears, is dumb, so he did not open his mouth. And so we see him in this moment choosing to be handed over for a, a murderer. Okay, flogged. This is where we get to the flogging. They released, in verse 26, at Barabbas them, but he had Jesus flogged and handed him over to be crucified. Mel Gibson, I think, was the first person to ever have the courage. He's actually been extremely criticized for it, but had the courage to depict what actually a flogging looked like. There's only one actual video image we have in the world today of what Jesus' flogging would have been like, and it's from the Passion. And it's so horrible, by the way, that, I've, that I have never watched the movie again. Watched it one time. I've never been able to watch the film again a second time. But I would say that if, if you wonder what that's like, go look. Because I think he really tried to be faithful to the historical account. The next one, he was stripped, robed. Think about that. He was robed. He was crowned. He was worshipped. He was spit upon. He was struck on the head. Governor's soldiers took Jesus into the praetorium and gathered the whole company of soldiers. Okay, i got to quit now in two minutes, I think. They stripped and put a scarlet robe on him, and they twisted together a crown of thorns and set it on his head. They put a staff in his right hand. They knelt in front of him and mocked him. Hail, King of the Jews. They spit on him and took the staff, struck him on the head again and again. And I I can't finish the rest of this. You, You can go back and make your own list, but here's where I wanted to finish today. In August, uh, coming back from Africa in August of '69, we'd been in Jerusalem. And as a 13 year old kid, Jerusalem in Israel, it really wasn't that great. I mean, going back as an adult, it was unbelievable. At 13, I was still just too immature, it was too hot. We were there in August and was burning hot. Normally, when I take people, we take them in November or October. It's much more beautiful. But I had one memory like of that first trip. I had one memory, and that was being at, in the, uh, at the Mount of Olives. And they were talking, somewhere, they were doing something, and I wandered over to a thorn tree. And I broke off a thorn. Because I, I grew up in Memphis where the only thorns that I knew were like thorns or thistles on bushes. Or on a rose, like the little ones that would prick your finger when you're trimming a rose. And these thorns were two and a half to three inches long. And they were, like, imagine a toothpick, but imagine it three or four times harder than a toothpick. Even if you snapped it, it wouldn't break. It would just kind of fray. And the, and the tip is just razor sharp. I mean, just, Don, just, just tap and you'd bleed. And Rob Saunders was talking, all these kids, and I'm on the back row, and I'm trying to be as invisible as I can. And he got to this phrase where they struck him on the head again and again. And all I could see was those thorns. And I don't ever remember mom and dad or my sister or my two brothers had come with us on that trip. They'd come to Africa at the end and from college and high school and, I don't ever remember anybody talking about the thorns, but I remembered the thorns. The only place that I, up to that point, other than Africa, that I ever seen, and they were actually even worse than the thorns in Africa. The thorns in Africa were just as sharp, but they were never that long, but these just huge thorns. And I thought they struck him on the head again and again. And, and then this was the two words that I felt God said to me that through Rob Saunders for me. Like, you belong because this was for you, where he was willing to have this crown of thorns, this worship and just strike him. Again, and again, we're not even to the worst part yet. But for me, this was the worst part, where they were laughing and striking and driving these thorns into his skull. And then I thought back to Isaiah 53, where it talks about that he was unrecognizable. I thought this is what Jesus, is. and so for our children and our grandchildren and our great-grandchildren, for ourselves to realize what does Jesus offer that no one else offers, that's truly permanent and life-transforming, it's the gift of belonging. Like Jesus says, you belong to me, friend, to Judas, and to Peter. Peter, when you've, when you've recovered from what you've done, we're going to read that later, right? When, when you recover from this, you're going to feed my sheep. Like it didn't matter how bad people messed up. They were they still belonged to Jesus all along the way. So I want you to think about that. And I want to th- want you to think about the moment that you're praying for your kids and for yourself that you know you belong. This is the one belonging above all belongings that I want still after all these years. And you want it too. And that's why you're here and you want it for your kids. Gift of seeing, second turning point, the gift of belonging. Okay, let me pray. Lord, thank you. Thank you for these absolutely amazing people. I just feel like there's going to be ripples of world-changing events that are come out of the lives of these families and the lives of these children that are running around, the lives of these amazing counselors. Thank you, Lord, that we belong to you. We want to belong. And like Peter, when when you asked Peter if he was going to turn away, Peter said, Lord, where else would we go? Like, where else would we go to find belonging? You have the words of eternal life, and then you proved it by all that you went through for us. Thank you in Jesus' name, amen.